97 South's Storytellers features conversations with professional songwriters and seeks to pull back the curtain on the art, craft, and career of songwriting. We'll bring you to those magical moments of creativity that have delivered the inspiring songs that make up the soundtrack of our lives. I'm Paul McGuire, and today's guest is Rick Emmett. It is certain that guitar virtuoso and Hall of Famer Rick Emmett does indeed have the magic power of the music in him. As principal songwriter, vocalist, and guitarist for the iconic rock group Triumph, Rick contributed to the group's impressive legacy of songs and gold and platinum album recordings. His prodigious and eclectic output as an independent artist and guitarist includes a score of commercially and critically successful singles and album releases and has informed Rick's passion and long tenure as an educator. Okay, so let's talk about the business, if we can call it that, of Triumph and you and your indoctrination into that world. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's day one? What's the first phone call? What's the, how do they know about you? Well, Neil Dixon and Steve Propas had this solid gold management kind of thing. Okay. And they had connections to a lot of bars in Ontario where they would then sort of be agents that would provide bands to people. You know, a guy owns a bar in Brockville and he doesn't want to have to be trying to chase around trying to find bands. So here's these guys from Toronto that go, oh, we can... We'll take care of that for you. There's no problem. We'll put bands in there every week. That and that was what the scene was like okay. in the mid seventies. So mid seventies. Yeah. Mid seventies. So they had a stable of bands and we became one of them. And they didn't they never did a damn thing to manage your career or build you up. They just they just filled the slot. They had an ex- whatever version of Excel spreadsheet was back then, they filled the slot. And they yeah. had a solid gold records thing that was starting and yeah. they were gonna sign acts to that. And so that was was their d- development plan. Yeah. But I we didn't see any of that happening when I was in this band called Act Three. So uh, Gill and Mike came, I was playing a bar called the Hollywood Tavern in Etobicoke with Act Three, and they came and saw me. And then it was like, uh, hey, you know, would you like to come and we'll have a, a get together and we'll jam and we'll, you know, we'll have a meeting. Th- they didn't impress me much when we played. <laughs> I'll be honest, I, you know, there's a documentary that's out now, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and in the documentary, there's a great mo- scene where Michael Cole yeah. is talking about Triumph, sort of talking its way into playing at the concert pool, Maple Leaf Gardens for the first time. And yeah. Cole goes, you know, their music was about here. He goes, but the, they were so pushy. They were so pushy. They were, they were like <laughs> up here. And I'm going, that's totally it, you know. And that was the first impression that I had. They sat me down at a table like this and they were putting contracts for gigs. They didn't even have a band. And they had a record contract with Attic Records. I'm going, how does this even happen? But it was because Mike had connections as a promo guy and, and he knew uh, Tom Williams at Attic and one thing had led to another. So it was like, well, we'll put out a single and if the single works, then maybe we'll do an album with you. And, and the contract kind of laid that out and I go, boy, it's, it's, it's a pretty good vision. They really do have a... Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. This smoke and mirrors all, like works on the people inside it as well. Like the, It the, does. Right? Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and Smoke and Mirrors is a good way, especially for a band like Triumph, which yeah. was all about sort of be larger than life, yeah. make people believe that it's larger than life. And then, you know, inside the band, it was like, Rick, you got to believe you're larger than life. You really are. That, that's what's going to have to happen here, you know. And it took me several years to, so, uh, you know, I think from 75, Inception, first album, 76, 
the first song that I wrote that was a song that fit was Hold On. Well, I think maybe Lay It On The Line came before Hold On writing-wise. Okay. But Hold On was the one that was like, we've named this thing Triumph. And we're going to be larger than life. Smoke and mirrors, flash pots, laser lights, you know, dry ice floating out. All of this stuff. What's a song that works with that? You know, you have to write your way into that. And the, the hold on to your dreams was like, this is the right feel. Like, this band should be about inspiration, motivation, that kind of stuff. That was the feeling. That moment of self-awareness, though, that you've got the ability to, like, get a message out there. That's amazing to, like, to, to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put this message out there. Hold on. Like, that's not just, like hey, this thing happened to me. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to dot some stuff down in my journal about this thing that happened to me. This is like, I'm now going to send a message out to the people. That's, that's when you become a songwriter. That's when you, yeah. be, right? I mean, of course, when you're in that environment, there's all kinds of songs that are about, hey, look at me, I'm in a band. Hey, let's party all night. Hey, sure. hey, we're, we're coming to your town. We're, you know, uh, but this and is a was, message. This song yeah, that you have is a message. And Triumph did have, we did have a party band kind of, like Gil liked to write those kinds of songs that came out of the school of Chuck Berry, Howlin' Wolf, you yeah. know, that yeah. kind, that, which was a thing that fed rock and roll and certainly was a big part of it. And you couldn't ignore that. I think Triumph had some blues in it and R&B kind of stuff, which like, was a- Like but, the Rolling Stones, like the like that yeah, kind of vibe. exactly. Yeah, okay. But I was much more of a Beatles kind of guy and, and certainly had Isn't gone that interesting? into the world of prog, like prog rock. Was, yeah, I liked sure. it. Sure, Rush. Uh, I loved it. Yeah, and yes. my favorite band when I was in high school was Yes. And they had this very positive kind of spiritual- uh, message of, kind of thing. Of course thing. they did. Their band was called Yes. Yeah. It's uh, like the most positive word that, that you can exactly. try to call our band after like the most positive thing you can yeah. say. Which again, like in this whole thing about bands and writing music in bands and songs in bands, like Prague wasn't necessarily about songs. Prague was more about concept. Yeah. And, the, and then within that band, it was actually Chris Squire's band, the bass player, as much as it was John Anderson, the lead singer. Anderson was the spiritual kind of, you know, hey, uh, you know, let's set up a backstage. We'll have a, a, a tent and we'll, like a teepee. Oh, right. So he'd have a, yeah. a, like, a, and they'd be doing some smoke in, in the teepee and, yes. and having a spiritual cleansing. You yeah. know? I was like, okay, that was, that was the singer. <laughs> Squire is going, let's go down at a pub. Yeah, he's getting point, you know. Yeah. Like, so I think that's one of the things of when you're writing for a rock band, you're gonna be finding, you know, a little of this, a little of that. So, so as far as your, like, so many of the songwriters that I've talked to over the years have talked about this need. It didn't matter if one person was gonna hear it, if nobody was gonna hear it, or if ten thousand people were gonna hear it. Like the idea of an idea getting out there. Mm -hmm. There must have been a moment where you thought an ego comes into it for sure, where you're like. This idea that I've got, I'm confident enough that this is a solid idea that I want to share it with people. Yeah, and you're touching on something that it's a real fundamental that exists right when you start. Yeah, and then it's it's all the way through, and even in the you know the golden years of your career, yeah. you know it's still a thing. Like I've written a book of poetry and put it out, and you have to sort of clear that hurdle of. Well, you know, am I going to call myself a poet? You know, am I going to take this step? Yeah. So, but I, I taught at Humber College for, you know, 20 years. 
direction, art direction, career direction. I did it all. I taught yeah. music business. Uh, I taught songwriting. And, and that thing of ego that you're talking about. But let me just walk it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when you're first starting, you know, I'm 10 years old. And I get a guitar and I learn a couple of chords. Who buys you the guitar, by the way? Oh, my, no, it was a hand-me-down. My grandfather got it out of his sister's closet. And it had a hula dancer and palm trees. Your grandfather got it out of his sister's closet. Yeah. I'm trying to keep track of this. Yeah. Okay. And it had a, a Hawaiian. Yeah. And it, you know, it had, a, it had a, <laughs> like a rope for the strap. And, and it was like a, like a catalog, you know, a forties catalog. And why of, did you, why were you attracted to this oh, instrument? Come on. The, the Beatles were on Sullivan. Ah, you know what I mean? Like okay, this gotcha. was, it was 1963. Yeah, yes. so, but another step back. When I was seven, eight years old, I was incredibly shy. And my mother said, well, I'm going to take you to choir practice and you can really sing. I'm going to get you. And so I was this little kid sitting in with the first sopranos at the church and I was singing in the choir. I'd go to choir rehearsals and then it was like, oh, Christmas pageant. Well, you're the one that's got the talent. You, you should. But uh, this thing, this gift that I had, this ability yeah. to get up in front of people and sing. So that fed the thing. So anyways, now I get the guitar. So it was your voice? All of this started with your voice? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sang in the Kiwanis choirs at Massey Hall when I was eight, nine years old. Rock and roll, Rick Emmett, the first thing that started was your voice yeah. in church choir. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, I don't know if it's incredible. No, it is. That's incredible. It's my story. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, what, it's what it was. And that was the thing that sort of gave me a certain amount of confidence so that now I get this guitar, learn a couple of chords, I go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a song. And, when, and then I write the song. And th this, this is so fundamental. I play the song for my mom. And my mom goes, you are a genius. You are incredible. <laughs> I'm that's so nuts. proud of you. You are so great. And that's a that's just a human thing. But you need somebody to be a fan. Somebody, what was the song? What was the song, Rick? It was called Soldier is a Man. It okay. had a C and an A minor. Okay. You know? yeah. Oh, you the, remember the chords? Oh, geez, yeah. The verse went, you know, from the C to the A minor, and then the chorus came and it got heavy. It went from the A minor to the C. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your mom loved it. Yeah, you know, it was you know it was a horrible thing, but the, you know the song was was terrible. But that's not the point. The point is somebody's gotta sort of be patting you on the back and making your head swell. But they were supportive of this. My mom was music. My dad kind of you know, and yeah. then even later in life, you know, my dad's filling up the Rambler to drive to some Friday night gig somewhere, you yeah. know, and with the PA sticking out the trunk. <laughs> And, you know, he, he was supportive in a certain way, but yeah. he never believed it was ever going to, until, you know, I started playing in bands and I was making more money by playing a Friday, Saturday yep. than I would ever have made doing anything else. But I swear to God, this is a true thing. It was about 1987, 80, somewhere around there. Okay. And I bought them a house. Yep. And my dad said something to me along the lines, half joking, but... Oh, so this music thing seems to be working out, you know, like <laughs> I'd already bought him a car. A car wasn't enough. A house was the thing that kind of made him, oh, I guess you, not, I guess you're going to have a career here, right? Honestly, not trying to make light of it, but do we all, are we all always doing that, trying to get the, the affirmation, like a little bit of that? Well, yeah. you, you know, your, your what question he before was about ego. Yeah. And so, and certainly there's a thing there, but there's also this other thing that, you know, I'm going to mention it and. You know, we're no, okay. bouncing around. So, Podcast. But yeah, when, when I would be with students, I would say, your ego, it's an important thing, but you need just enough 
to get you up there to, to be wanting to do it. You will get affirmation from an audience. You know, yeah. that can happen. Yeah. But that's not really a, you can't fall in love with that. It's dangerous. You know, that can lead to other kinds of problems. Really what you want is to have the, the music speaking to you in a way that you go, uh, I validated what I set out to do. The work itself, the process is giving me a great deal of gratification, of affirmation. Like I'm feeling good about the work that I'm doing, yeah. you know? And, and I would tell students all the time, there's, there's got to be a humility here. It's not just ego, you know? So there's a balance. Yeah. The humility has to be, it's an infinite task. The, the, the writing of music, the making of music, you're staring into the face of God. It's infinite. So are you going to be egotistical about that? Yeah. You need to be humble about that so that you're open to what the, the music offers you, what, what you know, the inspiration, you know, the muses, Terpsichore and yeah. the Rattle. Yeah, and, yeah. You whatever know. you're channeling. I yeah. like the, the balance of ego and humility, both important. Yeah, exactly. Both vital. Yes. Yeah, you, you need them both. And you have to try and keep it in balance. Like you're walking a, a high wire and there's no safety net. And then you add band members into this. Oh, yeah. Then you add the dynamic of people who are going to play the parts that you think that you've... Hey, by the way, drummer, I think you should do this. And he's like, well, I was thinking about this. And then there's the, that whole thing. Oh, and never mind, you know... And you, your band is called Triumph. Now you, you, go like to, you, you get to, to a succeed. certain level and now you've got record company guys yeah. that are going, you know, the, this is what we can get on the radio. And then you got managers and they're going, well, you know, this is really how, and how it works. And so now there's these pressures that then in Triumph's <laughs> career, we are in a stage where... MCA had bought the contract from RCA and MCA is going, well, you know, we're going to have to bring in like a big name producer and the big name producer and Ron Nevison came to our project, the guy that had resurrected Starship and yeah. Heart and, yeah. you know, I mean, he, he was just a, he was a recording engineer that had worked on some Who albums and, you know, yeah. y yes, he was, he was respected, but he had this thing of like, I'm going to tell this band what kind of image they're going to be projecting with these songs that I'm bringing. Oh, and boy. you go, you know, I can write. You know that. Like, I know how to sing. I've been singing ever since I was about seven years old. I don't necessarily need you to tell me, but political pressures and things. The, the intersection of art and commerce at that point, right? And in truth, uh, as my uh, life has gone on, and I, I got further and further away from being the rock star in spandex pants, <laughs> you realize that you're making artistic choices where, like, you know, I go, yeah, I think a jazz record. Uh, you know, jazz guitar yeah. really—it's—it—it it compels me. It's—it's—it's it, it's, it's calling to me. I, I should go for this. And of course, you're, you're going from—you know—rock music is like sixty percent of the market to jazz, which is two percent. Yeah. So you know, and then I go, I'm going to write a poetry book. <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh boy, you well, know. One of the things that I that I love about so many of the artists that I've talked to over the—you know—the almost thirty years that I've been doing this is that most of the men and women that are really, really successful, there was some abandon that was in there at the beginning. Sure, there, was, there were moments of like, okay, uh, this clothing company is coming. They want to sign a deal and they want to da-da-da-da-da. But there were moments when uh, you were in your bedroom with a guitar and you had an idea and you're like, oh my God, this sounds really good with that guitar line. Da-da-da-da. And then am I giving this idea less than the emotional weight that it deserves by 
putting it out there with a band and making it and putting a hook on it and do it like this is the, exactly this is the yes. so this is the sell the, the idea of selling out is ridiculous because he, the idea is that people need to hear it in order for it to be art to begin with right and you you guys did that so there must have been a point where you guys were like yeah this is a business do you remember that moment well uh, no because no. it was you just did it. it and it came organically you know you're in a bar and you're playing for people and you're realizing they're singing the words back. Well, or this song's never, it doesn't go over uh, at all. Or the other way yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so that teaches you something sure. like, oh, but this one that goes hump, 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 and it just won't <laughs> stop. Oh, they, they seem to be nodding in agreement to that, you yeah. know. So there's certain things that just, you're going through the stages and the business is teaching you it itself. Yeah. You can be precious or not. But your point is a really good one. It's okay. a valid one. It's oh, a strong thank God. One. And yeah, that, that. There has to be something in a song right. that reaches out emotionally and connects to people in a way that they go, this song is meeting me where I live. This song is... is, is it doesn't matter if I've experienced that exact thing, but the meaning is universal. And you want that emotion. You want to make that emotional connection. That's the biggest thing of all with songs. And you can do it with two chords. You can do it with one chord, you know, like... Chain of Fools, Aretha Franklin, is a one-chord song, you know. Uh, Showbiz Kids, Steely Dan, it's a one-chord song intentionally. Well, no, we can make a great recording, a great song out of, it doesn't need a lot of chords. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking to a guy here, like there's some songs I write where I love, how many more chords can I fit in there? Because I would really like but to Because fit. you're a guitar player, and that's what guitar players do. Well, you guys not, are like, you guys have... Not like, all of them. Not all of you them. Know, no. no, you know, a Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of player is not a guy that goes, hey, I need a thousand chords, you yeah, know. That's true. But, okay. you know, a player like John Pertzarelli Jr., like, he, he likes a lot of chords, and yeah. so do I, you know. Um, a, a part of me does. There's another part of me as a writer where I, I totally appreciate Bob Dylan, you know, I respect it, and I sometimes try to write in that ballpark, you know. But I tended to be a kind of writer where I bounced around. You know, I would be here, and then I would, oh, because I'm a musician, I, I would then kind of go over to here. Now, here's an interesting story. Yeah, please. Musician. Somebody once was interviewing Roger Waters, and they said, you know, and you're like, you know, one of the most famous musicians in the world. And he says, yeah. I'm not a musician. And they go, uh, I beg your pardon, you know, like I'm a composer. Uh, was he? Well, that was his point. What that he was making is like a musician is somebody you put something in front of them and they can sight read it, and and uh, you can say, well, can you try it in E flat? And they can transpose sure. it. And sure. A musician is someone that can take uh, input and and out it goes. You know, they they translate. And he goes, I can't do that. I can't sight read. I can't. I can only play what I write. I can. O I'm I'm an artist. I, I do what I do. I don't do what anybody else does. And I thought, that's a really good uh, clarification and understanding that, that writers need to know. They need to know that you are really trying to do this very subjective thing in order to come up with whatever it is that you come up with. So back to your point about, you know, making that connection. Yeah. And do we need, you know, Amazon or, or Molson's or somebody, you know, and Triumph ahead tour sponsors you know we were one of the bands yeah. that really pioneered that you know uh in fact uh i think the first tour sponsor we had was converse running shoes let's you know? go i love the high tops in the united states yeah you know the amazing thing about the roger waters story is that he's it's kind of like listening to a self-help book 
from Elon Musk. <laughs> a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. Roger Waters talking to people about songwriting. is like, you've made an incredible impact on the world of art with your music. Now for you to say that it doesn't really, like, like for you to like, take the importance away from the songwriter or the craft of songwriting, whatever. No, I don't think he was or, taking or, the... No. I, I think what he was trying to do was say, like, look, I'm not... Uh, I'm not... I think there was a humility there, in what there he was, was saying. Okay, good. I, I'm not a musician. I'm this guy that sort of just sits down and figures out my my own little sandbox. I remember interviewing know? Anthony uh, Hopkins um, for, for a, a, a movie junket once. And he's like, I don't just... I'm not an actor, really. I just say words. I'm like, it, it seems like that a little bit to me. There's some, yes. I mean, a, a, again, asking people, and again, I, I'm in that position with you right now. I'm asking you to be so self-reflective on your art, the thing that has and I, given you- I don't you, mind that. No, and, I know. And of course, I taught for such a long period yeah. of time that, that I can fall into the, you know, becoming this, the dog up on its hind legs, barking away, you know. Um, but you know, there's an ethereal thing to it. There's a thing- that is not um, a physical thing. There is, um, I don't want to say that it's spiritual necessarily. I think but you should. You, really? Yep. Th th there's a moment when you guys, when songwriters are in a moment in between sounds that are made, when you grab onto something and you're like, that's perfect. Yep. And that is what you fight for, I think, as musicians and songwriters. Am I wrong? No, no. Uh, fighting is part of it, but also sometimes <laughs> surrendering. Okay, right. So, so that you're going to allow it to happen. See, and I would tell students, like, first of all, you're going to have to give yourself permission to be great. Oh, I like, like that. And that's a hard thing to do. I like, like that. to find that thing and just say, okay, you know, uh, I'm capable of reaching these lofty spiritual heights. And yeah. when I say spirit, I'm not talking religion necessarily. I'm talking the human spirit. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So um, just that whole thing of you know climbing a mountain. You know why do you, why do people do that? And um, writing songs you is unlock like you unlock a, a, a an ability in people when you're talking to your students. You're like you allow them to go go do that. Go be great. Yeah, that's a cool and then, thing. And then the, this humility thing comes into play. Like yeah. yeah, okay, I'm great, but you know the the song is greater. And that's a very important thing to understand, that you're chasing this thing and that that thing can talk to you. It will actually tell you, you know, this is the right thing. There was once a, a thing I read uh, that uh, the, the conductor, uh, Bernstein, was talking about Beethoven. Yep. And he said, the thing about Beethoven is it's flowing along and something happens and you realize the choice that he made as a composer, is exactly the right thing that should have happened. So there's an inevitability that, that happens in this music, yeah. the, uh, the choices that he makes. And there's a composer named Aaron Copeland that wrote a book called What to Listen for in Music, which I think all young music students should, ha they should have to read this book. And he talks about la grande ligne, the, the long line, the, the big line. So that there's this thing, this thread, the golden thread that runs through what you've done. That's, it makes sense. It has an integrity to itself. And that's what good writers have to figure out. Like, what is that? What choice should I make here? Oh, I don't know where the melody should go. Oh, I don't know what chord. Oh, you know, but yeah. well, what style did you like? Is Converse your sponsor? Like, there's all of these yes, things that you have to yes. weigh, and then you weigh them. And who's my bass player? Can he can he cut that part? You know, like if I was in a band with Paul McCartney, oh my God! Imagine how much 
uh, how many options you've got just because you're working with that kind of talent. You know, if I had a voice like Bob Dylan's, I would have made different choices, you know? Okay. But you did, you, in a time, created art that stands up today, that when people listen to Triumph songs, when they listen to the songs that you created, there is no doubt. Not only do they sound great today, like the day that they were mastered and came out of the studio, but they were inspiring the moment and have lasted. That doesn't happen for everybody. No. Nobody says, oh man, that's so, that, that's not, that doesn't, you, it's aged well. You know that, that term, that hasn't aged well? That's been around for now because okay. of cancel culture so stuff. Triumph ta- songs have aged well. Here's the tangent that's jumping into my mind. Okay. Right? Like you and I, before we got on here, yeah. we were talking about baseball. Yeah. And I played a lot of sports when I was a kid. Yeah. And, and I coached, you know, uh, my, my own kids, some, a little bit of soccer, a lot of baseball. Yeah. Sports teaches you something about being in the moment, and it also teaches you a certain kind of integrity. It teaches you about kind of the ethics of how this works because, you know, luck is playing a part, but how much did you practice? You know, all of these things. And it relates to a, a music and a songwriting kind of thing. So this longevity that you're talking about that's in the songs. Timelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Is because I had an awareness of integrity and, and like, not in a conscious kind of way, but when you're a seven-year-old kid and you're singing in the church choir and the organ is, you know, he's pulling out some stops, he's playing some things and you're going, oh, what is, what's that buzz that's coming up my ass? <laughs> like, oh, this is so good. I know. And then you go, okay, so you start to understand. 13 years of, of Catholic school, by the way, I love the music. That's, the, that's the, my favorite thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it gets you to a point where, you're kind of having a, a, an understanding. It's more corporeal than it is yeah. intellectual. Yeah, you know, yeah, your yeah. body kind of knows this thing. There's an instinct you kind of get. Yeah. So I had that. And I think, you know, despite myself and triumph, sometimes those things would find their way into a song so that the song would have a kind of an integrity and it would still work, you know, um, you knew yeah. that at the time that you were doing it? I, I You're f- like, this is important. we got to get this in there. Well, yes, but I think more it was like the music was telling me it was good. You know, like, no, this song is, it's holding together well. This song has better integrity than the one that I wrote two weeks ago, than the one that I wrote two years ago. Yeah. Like, I'm learning something here. I'm, I'm moving forward. Uh, these things are getting better. Like, in the Triumph documentary, there's a moment where, you know, they're talking about me bringing Leon on the line to them. Yeah. And Mike and Gil both go like, yeah, Rick was getting better at writing songs. And it's true. <laughs> it's it's true. That song still stands up. And because it has an integrity to it, there's a there's a, a marriage of melody to chord changes to what the lyric is about that, you know, here's this guy and he's saying like, I, I wish you'd just be honest with me. I wish you would just lay it on the line. And lay it on the line is a kind of a cliche, but cliches are, perf- to me, they're perfectly fine for songwriters. Yeah. I think country music is full of them all the time. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. You know, I mean, how many songs on the chart at any given point in time are talking about trucks and booze? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, but it's because that belongs to that style. It it's endemic to the, to to what that is, and you're going to be able to touch people where they live if you're talking about the things that are part of their lives. So everybody struggles with the idea of honesty. Should I tell the truth or should I tell a little white lie? Or? Tell the truth. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my that's that's it. And I've talked to so many songwriters over the years who 
are often surprised by the fact that things that are so specific to them that have happened to them become so universal or ubiquitous that, oh my God, this thing that happened to me, whether the specific thing is relatable or not, the emotion of it is relatable. Yes, exactly. And that's what you guys did. That's yeah. what you did. Oh, th- yeah, must- well, thank you. Yes, you know, I mean, you get lucky sometimes. Oh, okay. you, know, like, you got lucky a lot. Yeah, but, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> here's something that I used to tell students all the time. I'm telling yeah. you now. Yeah. Uh, the greatest batting average of all time, Ty Cobb, 0.367. So he failed more than seven times out of 10. And he failed yeah. more than seven times yep. out of 10. Yeah. And he was the greatest of all time. So, you know, you look at that and you have to say to yourself, get used to failure. Get used to songs that don't, for some reason, they just don't work. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into the garbage. I'm wondering, when you go out and write, are you a a guy that has an idea and wants to pursue that individually, or do you need collaborators to bring that across the line? I've tried, you know, I've tried both things. As I got older, I got to the point where I sometimes really enjoyed collaborating. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that too. I've heard that. Yeah. Like guys that, that, that at the beginning, it's like, uh, this is my art. This is my poetry. This is my da, 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 da. And then, oh, it's fun to talk to other human beings as they age. Yeah. Now, yeah. You know, I mean, certainly my experience of being in triumph, uh, I found frustrations, uh, okay. you know, based on just who the other guys were. Like, you know when you, a band breaks up and they say, well, you know, they had creative differences. Yeah. And we did. Yeah. But we also had political differences. We also had, like, yeah. you know, ethical, moral kinds of differences. There, there, it, was, it was a complex thing, and you're living in each other's pockets, yeah. you know. And in Triumph's case, those guys were managing my career. They were the managers of the band, you know, Gilmore than Mike. And it was like... I don't think I want these guys managing my life and my career anymore, you know. So so that led me to go, well, yeah, you know, I I, I, w- I want to be doing my, I want to be boss. I want to be a benevolent dictator of my own world. So I step out. But one of the first things I did was, you know what? I'm going to go do some co-writing with uh, uh, Eddie Schwartz and with uh, Graham Shaw and Bob Halligan Jr. Because yeah. Bob Halligan Jr. has written with, Kiss and Judas Priest. And so I, I want to see what it's like to co-write with guys. Um, so you were ready at that point to step off of stage. I just wanted to learn. Yeah. I wanted to learn what it would be like to be out of a rock band and into an, different types of worlds. But then I realized, I, I, I really think I want to write on my own. I want to be my own boss, yeah. you know, and I don't want somebody leaning over my shoulder making changes and things. Yeah. So, and I went through a long period of that. And then the business, you know, life is going along and guys that were, you know, old fart rock stars in spandex pants from the seventies and eighties. It's <laughs> like, well, you're passe now. We don't, we don't want you. Radio's yeah. not going to play you. The, the, you're not going to get a record deal. So then I go, okay, well, I'll go indie. I'll, I'll make my own records in my own basement and I'll, you know, and so, wow. and I made more music, far more music after I left Triumph than when I was in it. Did they, did I get on the charts? You know, did I sell a million units? No, yeah. but I always sold enough that I got my money back. I was making a little profit and go out and playing shows and I was doing fine. I had a career, you know, and it, it was a modest one, but I got to do music, write songs that 
you know. So then you go. What were you writing about? What stories were you telling? Well, the first things were more uh, musician kinds of records. I started okay. making a classical guitar record. I made a jazz arch top kind of a record, uh, a blues record. Yeah. I was going into styles and just so instrumental self-indulging stuff? a lot. Okay. But also, if a tune popped out at me, I was I was going to finish it. I was yeah. going to try and write the it. The poetry was there. Yeah, and then okay. I went into singer-songwriter mode after that. And okay. so then there were some records that were very singer songwritery, Paul Simon, James Taylor-ish. Love it. You know, yes. Yeah, like, uh, and I did that. And then I was starting to get, now, oh, we're going to get Jane Bennett come in and play some sax. Oh, I'm going to get Ian Thomas to come and sing some backgrounds because he's a pal of mine. So these things are starting to happen. I go, I should maybe collaborate again. And, you know, and so then one of the guys that I toured with, Dave Dunlop, uh, I got to the point where instead of going out and playing solo shows, if I had somebody to play off of, a, a piano player or a guitar, it allowed the show to have a little more dimension, and yeah. I enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah. And Ian came to one of my shows. He goes, why do you give the sidemen so much latitude? Like, you give them so much time. And, and he goes, like, <laughs> but Ian had been a solo artist all of his life. Yeah. You know, to him it was all about... How can I get a little more of it? <laughs> and I was getting to the point in my life where it was like, yeah, you know, I, yeah, it's not about me. It's more about the tunes. And so then Dave and I started doing some collaborating and it was great. We made it, we called this little thing, the strung out troubadours and it was fun and they were good records and they were, they were good songs. Then I get to a point where I go, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I, I want to get back to, you know, satisfying my own writing urges and, and following my own instincts and yeah. stuff. So. Is there a difference for you as a songwriter and a storyteller um, being on stage and performing something that you have written versus something that you were interpreting for somebody else? Yeah, and I didn't do a lot of covers in my life, yeah. but when I did, uh, I would give myself to them as a musician, as an artist. Conduit. Yeah, yeah. like, uh, but in my own way. One of the songs that I used to do, and I would put my guitar down and my piano player would play Can't Make You Love Me. It's a, it's a, yeah. uh, Alan Reed, uh, Mike Shamblin, Reed and Shamblin. And, but of course the definitive version is Bonnie Raitt. Yeah. And you're never going to do it better than her. No. Like her version of it is sublime, but it's like, I got to find that place. So when I would do that song, it was like, I got to get to that place where I can give myself goosebumps. If I can do that, then I, I'm, I'm doing the tune justice. You know, you can get yourself to a place where you can give yourself goosebumps about it. That's amazing. I don't know about amazing. No, 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 no. But that's, but that's, that's the. To me, I think that's the. If you can't, if you're an actor, if you can't get yourself to the point where there's tears down, they're real. Like you, you didn't do yeah. the job. Yeah, that's like, good. So you never lost that. You never lost that through through, through the, the the entire the struggle of the you know commerce and no, art geez, and no. All and that, in you fact, never lost the love of music that way. Oh no, no. But but it became uh, actually a liability. It became dangerous for me. Like I was starting to mean? have. Well, I was getting to the point where I was having psychological issues and it was just... Because of music? It just, and the more probably, I think, uh, the traveling and airports and hotels and, right. and, and, the, and I'm getting older and now it's harder to hit the high notes. And it's, you know, these guitar pieces that I've written for myself that are wickedly hard. <laughs> it's like now I can't play them anymore because I'm getting some arthritis and I've, this finger I've right said, here. I've said this to artists that I've interviewed over the years. I'm like, why did you make that so high? Put it in a lower key. Make it easier on yourself. What are you doing? Yeah, and uh, you know, you, there's tricks. You start turning the <laughs> guitar goes down a half step. Oh, man. You know, you start transposing the the old triumph songs are now down a minor third. Yeah. Like all of these things are starting to happen. And I'm getting to the point now where I'm on stage 
and I'm really nervous. And so you're going, okay, this is not good. I used to be cocky and confident, and oh. now I'm feeling, you know, vulnerable. And so now, emotionally, ooh. It can like, almost up. like you had to play a part. Yeah. Like, I'm up here. Now, I'm not being me, the authentic me. I now have to play a role, a role that I've defined for myself that everybody expects me to be able to fill. But let me ask you something. Yeah. The authentic me. Yeah. When you're with your kids, yeah. you don't behave the same way that when you're in your bedroom alone with your wife or, you know, if right. you're out having a beer with the boys and you're watching a sports on TV, there are, so, there's so probably what, a lot of going on there. So what you're saying, there are roles that we play. All, we, Shakespeare, there are roles that we play. Yeah. Yeah. We, we act, we behave. Yeah. There's characters and personalities that we take on in certain settings, you know. If we, we take the 30,000 foot view of, of your career, though, and the idea that there's this guy that was pretty good at music and kind of like the idea of poetry and storytelling and turned it into the rock godness of it all, the idea of triumph. And when people talk about triumph, there is rock godness that is attributed to that band. And the fact that you are such a, a well-rounded individual and human being, it's got to blow your mind that the idea of storytelling brought you to this incredible place in life. Yeah, I don't know if it blows my mind. I, I, I and but part of it is because I'm that guy that you just described. Yeah, and I'm not that guy that you just described. In okay. other words, there's a scene in in Groundhog Day. Give me it. And Bill Murray's sitting with the, the girl, and she goes, "So you're telling me you're you're God? That's what you're telling me? You're God?" And he goes, "Well, I'm not the God. <laughs> I'm, I'm a God. I'm a God." <laughs> Whenever people say to me, oh, rock god, I go, yeah, well, you know, I've, I've, met, I've met many rock gods, and I can tell you they're, yeah. they're not very godly. Let me sort of try and put it in this kind of context. Please. yeah. You know, because there the are documentaries out there, and one of the things they go, oh, you know, greatest moment in Tri- Us Festival, 1983, 250 to 400,000 people. And it was surreal. It was an un- and it just so happened that that afternoon, when I played my guitar solo as part of the set, I had a pretty good day. I had a pretty good day. Okay. I kind of nailed it, you know. So it doesn't happen every day, you know. But then there's a video of it that comes out on DVD. And and, and, you know, and now other guitar players are walking around going, yeah, this guy. Yeah. You know. But part of that is because, well, he wrote for Guitar Player Magazine and he won some awards and some contests. And, and so then people are kind of, it's their perception that I'm a god. You know, and am I going to actually buy into somebody else's perception of who I am? And I go, no, I, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to do that, even if they're partners of mine in a band. Yeah. I go, mm, I'm sorry. I don't want to be what you think I should be. Can I ask you, though, the affirmation from an audience or uh, a peers, it helps, though, right? The affirmation helps the confidence. The, of course, right? of course. Next time you go out on stage, you're a little bit looser. I, and in the documentary, I talk about this thing about, you know, like if you and I are sitting here and we're having a conversation and then the conversation kind of gets up to a certain point and we're really, the energy is being exchanged I here. like to think that's this what we're doing right now. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And so this <laughs> rises to a kind of a level where... A you crescendo, know, you might say. At, well, whatever. They're editing it later and they go, this is going to be easy. And it's because... This thing has happened. So you're in our concert and you're playing and the audience is with you and they're singing along to the chorus or whatever. Yeah. But you just, that thing is starting to happen and you're going, okay, this is on a higher level now than 
than I could have necessarily done. I needed the audience to kind of make it happen on this level. I needed the lights. I needed this giant PA. I needed this Gibson Les Paul. Like, you know, I needed these Converse sneakers. (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) Right, But you get get it. it. It's like all of these things are kind of integrating in order to make this energy thing happen. And it's a when it does happen, it's a beautiful thing. Like, man, when you... Are you know kids going up to the on deck circle? Yeah, and you go look. Don't think. Just don't think. See the ball and hit. Neil just Neil. L- l- see the ball, hit the ball. Just swing. And were that, you at practice today? Well, that's exactly what we say. And all you, the time. you were talking earlier about yeah. abandon. Yeah. Like just let the game come to you. Don't try to force the game. Like a kid's get, going to a ground ball. You go no. Let the ball come. Like you don't. There's some balls you do have to go get. But yeah. there's some balls where you just let them come, and if you if you if you try too hard, you're gonna screw it up. So let the game come to you. Oh. So this whole idea of abandon, yeah. it's also part and parcel of the chemistry of how these moments occur. And yeah. music is very much like that. That it has to have this kind of flow, where where you're in the music, the music is in you. You've got an audience that's listening to it, and they're contributing to to this atmosphere. Like, that's the beautiful thing about it. And, of course, songwriting, you know, to go back to what we're supposed to be telling stories. I know, yeah. You wrote this. You created the script for this. It didn't exist before you wrote it. So back to this thing about playing God, you know, and being a God. Like, every songwriter, in a way, is like... They're kind of going, and I'm going to take this character and put him over here, and then I'm going to make him say this, and then I'm going to, you know, like you're playing God. Yeah. But it's in a, you know, you're doing it in a little small kind of thing, and you got to make it work in that little small thing. It has to have the integrity of that little small thing. So that's the story that you're telling. And if you've if you wrote the script and now you're playing your song in front of people and they're going, yeah, man, so beautiful. I'm in your story now. I'm so totally in your story, and you're going. Yes, you are. Uh, you ever get? And I am a god. You ever? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It yeah. has it has shown you um, the four corners of the planet, and unfortunately, or fortunately, you're you're imprinted on everybody's brain, man. Like the people that love the band, it's a gift, though. You you got to understand that the thing that you did that seemed maybe didn't seem at the time, but that can be seen as selfish. The art, the indulgence of art. I'm going to do this. Ultimately, gives people so much joy. And that's what your band did. And that's what you've done over the years that you were involved in it. And I know it was not done altruistically, fully altruistically, because you're an artist and you're doing what you're called to do. The beautiful side effect of that is the joy that you've given everybody over the years. And it's quite something. I hope you, I, I hope you recognize that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like everybody sort of uh, embellishes stories as yeah. they go, which is, this is the sort of thing about, you know, being a rock star. Or It's like... It's like branding, right? It's like it's in somebody's head. So a guy named Peter Spellman used to teach music business at um, Berkeley. Okay. And he had a book. And, and when I was doing my music business course, you know, I'm reading books in order to try and bring salient things to yeah, the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he had this story about peanut butter. So a guy's running a peanut butter business because he's trying to teach about branding. And uh, so a guy's got a pen, and he's, it's not going well. He inherited the business from his dad or something, and it's going bad, and, and it's losing money. And so the guy goes, well, last ditch. I got my last hundred grand. What am I going to do? He pulls all the peanut butter back off the shelves, changes the labels on them. And on the label, he puts new, improved, 
gourmet peanut butter. And when he puts it back out, you know, with gold leaf on the fancy packaging, and then bumps the price so that, you know, the other jars of peanut butter are five bucks, his is 10. Yeah. You know, and I would say to my students, okay, so pick your ending. Does he make a million bucks? Does he, you know, does he go bankrupt? Like what happens? And, and I said, do you think what he did was ethical? I would say that to, to students. Wow. That was my question. Like, did he do something ethical? Now, I got mostly jazz students. You yeah. know, they're, they're learning. That's the pedagogy they're learning. So, yep. you know, but these are artists, you know, to, to be artists. So they would say that's unethical. Most of them go, this right. is horrible. Yes. Did he change the peanut butter inside the jar? And I go, no, he didn't. Yeah. And they go, well, then that's unethical. Yeah. He, he shouldn't have done that. And I go, okay. You want to be in the music business, I want you to understand this, okay? He did change the peanut butter because he changed the label and he changed the price. So what he was doing is changing the positioning of the peanut butter in everybody else's head. And that's what the music business does yeah. a lot of the time. That's not the way the real world actually works. And if you're going to be a rock star... And you start believing that thing that's in other people's heads, you're in trouble. Yeah. That's because you're not that. Do you see yourself as a storyteller? Yes. Yeah. And, and I like telling stories. Yeah. I like telling jokes. I like, most of all, I like songs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's, that's the thing that, that I'm best at. What an amazing confluence then of this, this idea of, the, of the, the ability to tell stories and your guitar aptitude. What a beautiful marriage that is. Do you want me to uh, give you uh, some insight into that too? Please, you want yes. to talk about beautiful confluence? Yeah. I'm left-handed. And when I, well, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not left-handed. I'm something called dextrosinistral. So, it's, bless you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right hand, fine motor control. I write with my right hand. I eat with a fork with my right hand. Golf? Uh, I want to do left. See, look, batting practice. Batting practice. Le left, 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 left. When I throw a baseball, left. Left. When I kick the soccer ball, I'm gonna. My dominant foot is my left. Left. So left is gross motor control. Okay. Right is fine motor control. Yeah. And so when I first pick up a guitar, there's Paul McCartney on TV, and he, you know, lefty and playing the guitar, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's lefty, yeah. and I got the guitar, and I'm lefty, and I'm no, no. And so I win eight free lessons at the Regency School of Music in West End, Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew how many notes are in a major scale. You know, you can win eight free lessons. So how many notes are in a major scale if you can win eight free lessons? I go, so I win the contest. And I'm pretty sure it was, you know, if somebody filled out the form and sent it in, they were going to go, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. just trying to drum up, you know, students. Yeah. The guy was handing them out in the, in the schoolyard on the, you know, the, I was going to call it the blow off <laughs> because of concerts. But, you know, when school's out at the end of the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's there. Hanging okay. So I, I, I go and, and I go to my first lesson and I got the thing in, in my lap and I'm ready to go. And he goes, mm, no. Uh, and he takes it and he turns it around in my hands. And I go, oh no, this is awkward. This is really weird. Oh, he knew. And he goes, look, his name was Jack Arsenault. Jack was a left-handed guy who played guitar right-handed. And he said, let me just, give me a month. He says, I guarantee you will be far better than your right-handed pals. And it's because your strong hand gets to be on the fretboard. Yeah. So the stuff that, you know, right-handed guys are going, 
this is so awkward. I can't make this happen. But give me a couple of weeks and I can make that happen. Like I could be on stage playing, you know, triumph gigs and going oodly, 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 oodly with one hand, you know. And the guys in the band used to call it dwiddly, dwiddly. Rick was really good at dwiddly, dwiddly. Oh, my God. And I can do this all day, you know. Because this is my strong hand. Yeah, but it, it, it took that guy, that instructor, to and see that. I hate to, to, to blow the cover off of the rock and roll industry, but yeah. Eddie Van Halen, yeah. Steve Morse, yeah. Richie Blackmore. You, you want me to keep going? Yeah. Waddy Wachtel, left-handed guys Come that play on. right-handed. It's true. I love like, it. So, but what are the odds... That I, you know, yeah. I get a guy, he's a, he's a lefty that plays righty. And, and so this is my, right at the, right at the fundamental, you know, the, the entry door into the thing. It's like, okay, we're going to give you a, a lucky break here. There's a lot of lucky breaks that have happened. It seemed, and by the way, there's no such thing as luck. It's, it's what is it again? It's uh, preparation and... Meets opportunity. Thank you. Well, so you obviously were there. You were doing that stuff. But there's a bunch of d sliding door moments in, in my, your in life. My, in my second book of poetry, which I'm working on, I came <laughs> up with a phrase in one of the poems and I called it serendipity duda. And I think there are things sometimes where it's just a lucky coincidence, a fluke of the universe, and yabba-dabba-doo. But serendipity yes, duda. Yeah, that's, that's what pretty I, great. That's what I call. That's it. pretty great. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's it's nice when it happens. But you're right. There's you got to do all the hard work. Man, oh man, you have uh, you have stories to tell, and you've told them so well. Thank you for this. This oh, is just welcome. such a pleasure talking to you. Like, oh, it's I fun. can't. I, Let's do it again Let's sometime. Do it again. Okay. Serendipity, do <laughs> Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been Storytellers. Join me, Paul McGuire, live this summer with Kim Mitchell. Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, 5440's Neil Osborne, and many others for an experience you'll remember always. The 97 South Song Sessions Songwriters Festival is happening this July, the 21st to the 23rd, in Penticton, British Columbia's incomparable wine country. An intimate, bluebird-style music performance that features songwriters in the round, playing their hits and relating stories of a life in music. Tickets and information at 97southsongsessions.com. Download the free Stingray Music mobile app and listen to the 97 South Song Sessions channel today. Stingray Music. Life's on you. Music's on us.